right, good morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan Suggs. I'm a pastoral resident here at the church and the young adult director. Uh, if I haven't met you, love to meet you after the service. I'll be right up here, but um, see a lot of familiar faces. It's good to see you all this morning. It's good to have the opportunity to, to preach God's word to you this morning. Uh, before we get going, I just want to say also thank you to all of those who helped welcome uh, my new son into the world six weeks ago. Uh, thank you for, yeah, thank you. Hannah says thank you too. Thank you for your prayers, uh, your your gifts, your help, your advice, the time that you've spent just holding a baby so that we could sleep. Like, thank you. Uh, if you could do that for about 18 more years, I think we'll be able to make it through this season of life. It'll be great. Uh, well, hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to John chapter 14. That's where we're going to be hanging out this morning. John 14, we'll be in verses 15 through 24. And as you're flipping there, I want to uh, just kind of prepare you for what we're about to see in this passage. Uh, this scene in John 14, I think, is one of the most tense, but also one of the most relatable passages in the Bible. Uh, what's going on here is it's the night before Jesus is betrayed, and he's going to be handed over to these Jewish officials, go to the cross, uh, and, and pay our penalty for our sin, and be raised from the dead. But the disciples don't know all the rest of that story. So as Jesus is in the room with the 11 disciples, and he's telling them, and he's preparing them for what's about to happen in their life, what's about to happen in the next few minutes, what's about to happen for when he goes to the Father, and, and they're left to do the mission. And he's preparing them for this moment, and they start recognizing that maybe things aren't the way that they uh, always have been. Maybe things are a little off kilter here. Because Jesus has just told them that one of them is going to betray him. And they start wondering, is it, is it you? Is it, is it me? They start having all this doubt about their, their crew, about them, even their own selves. Then Jesus tells them that he's going to a place where they cannot follow him. And so now it feels like Jesus, the guy that they followed for three years, is now abandoning them. He's leaving them. Where is Jesus going? Why can't we go with you? And then, right before we get into John chapter 14, Jesus tells everybody, and particularly Peter, that Peter is not as courageous and as bold as he thinks he is, but that he is even going to deny him three times by the end of the night. And so everything in their world right now is teetering. The whole, uh, what they expected Jesus to do and to be in their lives and in their ministry is completely out of sorts. All of their expectations are going out the window and they have no idea what's happening. Which is why this passage is so relatable, right? Because who hasn't been in a position where you've been disoriented by unmet expectations? Who here wants to raise their hand and say, I've never feared something in the future before? That bill that you don't want to come in the mail because you don't think you can pay. That biopsy report you don't want to get back because you think there might prove to be cancer. That meeting you don't want to go to because you think you might get fired at the end of it. There's so many things, millions of things every single day that disrupt us, that send our hearts into a frenzy, that things are outside of our sight, outside of our control, that lie in the future that we have no ability to handle. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, diagnoses them for them and diagnoses our hearts for us. He does that right before the passage we're going to look at and right after it. So if you're in John 14, look at verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. And then flip to verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
So the beginning and the end, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And this, this troubled word is used elsewhere in scripture to talk about water that's been stirred up, that it's, it's wavy, it's unsettled. And so for our hearts to be troubled means that uh, we have uh, things that are afflicting our own hearts and stir them up, unsteady them. They feel uh, not solid. And what Jesus gives us in this passage that we're going to look at today is he gives us the ballast that we need to be able to navigate the unsteady waters of our own hearts. And what he gives isn't airtight arguments and proofs and logic, but what he offers us is intimacy. Intimacy with him, but also intimacy with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. So intimacy with the entire Trinity. Now please don't fall asleep just because I said the word Trinity. I know that when we think of this word, we tend to think of like a dry, antiquated, speculative kind of idea, but the Trinity is really the, bl the bright, blazing, brilliant center of the Christian faith. And I hope that by the end of this passage, you'll be able to see how good it is that you can actually have intimacy with all three persons of the Trinity, that they can come into the very center of your life. And I hope that, that by the end of this, you'll see that this is actually a steady ballast to be able to help you navigate the things that trouble our hearts so much. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump in, all right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you don't uh, just leave our hearts in turmoil with things that uh, lie out in front of us that we have no clue about that can send us into fear and uncertainty and anxiety. I thank you so much that uh, you draw near to us and you invite us to draw near to you. So God, I ask that by the end of this time, you would help us more, look more like Jesus than when we walked in the doors because we'll love you more and that we'll desire a deeper intimacy, intimacy with you than we ever knew before. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, John 14, starting in verse 15 says, if you love me. Now, John's gospel, uh, sometimes it's called the gospel of love, because he mentions love about four times more in this gospel than any of the other gospel accounts. And already to this point in the book, uh, Jesus has talked about uh, the Father's love for the world in John 3.16. He's talked about the Father's love for his own son. And then Jesus in chapter 13 has talked about his own love for the disciples, that he will love them to the very bitter end. And then right before we come into this chapter, Jesus tells the disciples that they ought to love one another. And then that's the proof that they are actually his, his uh, disciples. But here we are, for the first time in the book of John, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, if you love me. So these guys who've been following Jesus for three years, gave up everything to follow him. He now looks at them with all of their hearts in turmoil and he says, if you love me. He doesn't say, I know that you guys love me, so just listen up. He says, if you love me. And I don't think he's trying to stir up their hearts anymore. I don't think he's trying to get them to doubt and be like, oh my goodness, do I love Jesus? But I think he does want them to, to critically assess what's going on in their hearts. Do I love Jesus as much as I think or I say I love Jesus? That's a good question for disciples to ask, isn't it? We should have that uh, always kind of rehearsing in our mind, man, am I showing that I love Jesus right here? Would I say that my affections are stirred up for Jesus and Jesus alone? I think the most mature disciples are the ones who are often aware of how little they love Jesus, aren't they? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
And the people who, who just kind of assume, yeah, of course I love Jesus. Have you seen? Yeah, of course I love Jesus. You know me. I think those people who are the ones who are most in danger of, of missing out on the intimacy that Jesus is going to offer in this passage. Because we don't just not love Jesus. You know that? You know back in chapter 3 in John, uh, John says that the light came into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light. He doesn't say the people didn't love the light. He says people love darkness. So this is the perennial problem across all humanity and across all of our own hearts is that not just do we not love Jesus like we should, but we tend to love other things more. We're always lovers of something. Something's always captured the affections and the desires and the wants and the hungers of my heart. And Augustine, the guy in the early church, said that, uh, yeah, I get the guy in the early church. It's, it's a good enough description. Um, you get it. Uh, he says that this is actually what makes our hearts so restless, or we say troubled, is that our hearts were made for the love of God. We were made to love God, but so often we love other things. We're like a magnet that's meant to, to be stuck to metal, or like a ball that has been held beneath the surface of the water and wants to come up. We're restless, we're agitated because we're displaced from the place that we know we want to be, where we know is home for our hearts. That's what unsettles us so many times. So I think it's worth us asking could it be that my troubled heart sometimes is at least somehow related to the fact that I tend to love other things more than Jesus? It's worth asking. It's worth examining my life. But how do you even assess something like that? How do you know if you really love Jesus as much as you say that you love Jesus? Well, I think the first step is to compare Jesus' definition to your life. So how does Jesus define love. Let's see. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But what does it look like to love Jesus? Is it that you have the best quiet times in the history of quiet times? Is it that you, you post so much about your faith on social media? Those are good things. No, but it looks like true, genuine obedience. Not perfect morality, but true, genuine obedience. And something that we see already in the beginning here that's so crucial for our relationship with Jesus is that Jesus and me, me are not equals, right? Welcome to Christianity 101. That's the basics. I'll be your lecturer today. I'm Jonathan. Jesus and I are not equals, right? He's the creator. I'm the creation. He's the master. I'm the servant. So he commands, I obey. Why? Because I love him. Because we love him. That's why we obey. It's our heart's desire to want to, to know him and to love him. So is walking in obedience a priority in your life? If not, if not, then you're not going to have the intimacy with him that he wants you to have because you don't really want it. At your heart of hearts, you love other things more. But if you do love Jesus... If his love has so warmed your heart that you want to love him and that you want to obey him, oh man, you just walk through the front door of intimacy with him. There's so much on the table for you. And that's what we're going to see next, all right? So what, what is true of the people who love Jesus? What kind of intimacy can we have with them? And the first thing that we see is that we have intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, 
and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So does, uh, does intimacy with the spirit sound kind of funny to you? Does it sound like, hey, I want you to go out on Meeting Street and I want you to have intimacy with the wind. It's going to be so good, so rich, warm your heart. Cold your body, warm your heart. No, because look at how Jesus talks about the Spirit. He says, you know him. And I know we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as kind of this power or this force that kind of sweeps into our lives like the wind. Even Jesus described it as the wind. But he also says that he's a him, which means that the Holy Spirit isn't just a force, but the Holy Spirit is a person, which means that we can have an intimate, loving, deep relationship with him. We can know him. He can know us. We can lie to him. He can, he can not lie to us. We can deny him. We can, we can interact with him. And so let's see what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit to inform our relationship with him. This is such a neglected part, I think, of the Christian faith. That I think there's so much on the table here for us. So let's see, what does it look like to really have intimacy with the Holy Spirit? The first thing he says is in verse 16, it says that he is a helper. Now the Greek word here for helper is parakletos. Uh, it's where we get the word paraclete from. And uh, it's, if, it's not the best way to define a word, but if you were to break it up, it would maybe mean something like one who's called to come alongside you. And this is why it's used a lot of times outside the Bible in a legal format. It's someone who comes to your help to defend your case, your cause, before a judge. This is how uh, John uses it in 1 John chapter 2, when he says that if anyone does sin... We have an advocate, Parakletos, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Because he's the one in the throne room of heaven, pleading our case, defending us. But that's not how John uses the word here. To help us understand what he means, he gives us another word right before that. He says that he's another helper. Which means, Jesus is saying, in a sense, that what I'm sending you is another one just like me. Just as I, Jesus, have walked with you guys, just as I've comforted you and strengthened you and encouraged you, so another helper, just like me, is going to come and do the same thing. He's going to be another Jesus, in a sense. Which is why helper or comforter or advocate or whatever word is in your Bible, uh, those are probably fine uh, descriptions of it. But I think one translation, the Knox translation, gets it a little bit more accurately when it says that he is another friend. Another friend. He's the friend of all friends because he's the one who comes, picks us up out the dirt, cleanses us off, washes us with clean water, sanctifies us, walks with us every single day, and encourages us, comforts us, walks with us until forever, Jesus says. And so just like Jesus, he's the friend of all friends. And when your heart is troubled, isn't that what you want? Don't you want a friend? A friend who can stick by you, be with you, comfort you, encourage you, tell you when you're wrong? That's the first thing we see. The second thing that we see is in verse 17. It says that he is the spirit of truth. Now, in the disciples' heads in that moment, they should be thinking about what Jesus said just five minutes ago. As Jesus is telling them that he's going to prepare a place for them. And he tells them that you know the way there because I am the way and the truth and the life. And when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to send you the spirit of the truth, in the disciples' head, they should be like, ping! Oh, okay, so this is the spirit of truth. This is the spirit who's going to point us to the truth. 
Meaning that he's going to point us to Jesus. Because that's what the best friends do, right? Best friends point other friends to Jesus. Those are the best friends that you can have. The ones that say, hey, look at that guy. Look what he did. Man, this guy's awesome. You're all right. But look at this guy. Isn't he great? Look what he did. Look what he promises to do. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And I think that sometimes we get a misunderstanding of what it really looks like to to have the Spirit, right? We talk about, I want to go to a Spirit-filled church. You know what that means? It means that church is going to talk a whole lot about Jesus. Because that's a Spirit-filled church. The, The Holy Spirit is the one who doesn't want to be in the spotlight. He's like, don't look at me. Look at him. Look at that guy. Look at Jesus. And so, have you ever... Have you ever had those moments where all of a sudden a passage pops into your mind? The perfect time, you're sharing the gospel with somebody or you're discouraged and you just needed it. Or have you ever had someone text you or call you and remind you of the goodness of God and the grace of Jesus Christ and you thought, man, what timing? How did you even know? Well, you just came out of my mind. Wow, that's amazing. Have you ever been listening to a sermon and you feel like, it's just running through you. Like, it's just, everyone can see you. Everyone's like, yeah, the sermon's about that guy. Because you know that somebody is seeing me right now. Well, man, that's the spirit of truth. That's your friend. So don't kick at that. Don't, don't downplay those things. I think uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, don't ever resist an urge to pray. That's, that's great advice, but let's take it farther. Don't ever resist an urge to pray. Don't ever resist conviction. Don't ever resist an urge to be comforted by the Holy Spirit because these are the things that the Holy Spirit, your friend, is doing to draw you into deeper intimacy and in life with him. Don't spurn those things. Don't kick them away. That's your friend. He's drawing near to you. And it gets even better because what Jesus says at the end of 17 makes us so much richer. He says, uh, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, in what way has the Holy Spirit been with the disciples? Because I thought he hadn't come yet until Pentecost. Well, the disciples have been with Jesus, right? And we've been in Luke for a while. Hasn't the Holy Spirit been with Jesus the whole time? Isn't he the one that that hovers over the womb of Mary to conceive Jesus? Isn't he the one that, that enables Jesus to grow in wisdom and stature and favor in God, with God and man? Isn't he the one who anoints Jesus with his baptism and leads him into the wilderness and equips him and empowers him and walks with him and comforts him? So the Holy Spirit's always been with Jesus in his earthly life. But even before that, and even after that, the Holy Spirit is the one who's always been by the eternal Son's side. Which means... That before the Holy Spirit is ever even our friend, he's Jesus' best friend. And what Jesus is doing when he's giving us his Holy Spirit, he's saying, hey, I like this guy so much, I want to give him to you. You're going to love him. This is, meet Holy Spirit. You guys are going to get along great. He'll talk about me all the time. And uh, so what Jesus wants to share with us is his best friend. He wants to say, hey, this is my eternal companion, my best friend. I want you to have him. I want you to know the intimacy that I've had with him, the love that I've had with him. He's great. You're going to love him. Isn't that cool? Isn't that different than how we normally think about the Holy Spirit? This Holy Spirit who is always with us forever? So this is the kind of intimacy that we can have with the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't stop there. Because by the, the, the Holy Spirit... Uh, Jesus is going to show us something next. And you have to be thinking, if you're the disciples, 
you know that video where the kid gets the avocado for Christmas and he's like, oh, it's an avocado, thanks. It's an awesome video. You gotta think the disciples are kind of like that in the moment. Like, oh, it's the Holy Spirit, thanks. But Jesus, where are you going? Where are you going? We want you. We've, we've walked with you. You've encouraged us. Where are you going? Can you stay with us, please? And Jesus knows the desires of their hearts. He knows that longing. He knows those questions. And so he's going to answer them. And the way he answers them in this next section uh, is, is obvious references to the resurrection of his coming back to the disciples. But what the apostles came to realize later is that these promises weren't just temporary. They weren't just Jesus in those 40 days with them. But because of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, these promises apply to every single believer. And that's what makes them such good news and such a comfort for us. So I want to walk through them. Let's look at verse 18. It says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. So for these disciples, to be left alone, all alone, as orphans, without a guide, without a shepherd, without a rabbi, without a home, this was their greatest fear. You can imagine why. I think this is a lot of our greatest fears today. That loneliness, or the fear of loneliness, or even the appearance of loneliness in our life when we're not really lonely is one of the greatest things that, that stirs up and troubles our hearts, isn't it? That we are a more connected society than ever before, and yet someone, we just feel so lonely. We feel so guideless. We feel like we have no one there to direct us and walk with us. It, there's some way that God has made us that uh, for, to have people around you, you almost feel like you could go through anything, right? It doesn't matter what comes, we got it. I got these people. But if you have no one around you, if you have no one to love you, no one to help you, no one to guide you, no place to call home, it doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter the riches that you have. It feels like I, they're pointless. They're worthless. And it, as, as the, uh, the poet Alan Jackson once said, without somebody, nothing ain't worth a dime. That one's for Brandon and Ben. <clears throat> but this is seriously what makes these promises so comforting. So profound, so perfectly timed. It's because Jesus isn't saying, hey, when I give you the Spirit, I'm going to go on vacation in heaven for a couple thousand years. You'll be fine. Pray to me. You got access to me. Call me whenever you want. He doesn't do that. We don't get like cardboard cutout of Jesus or like Christmas inflatable Jesus. We don't get good vibes about Jesus. But when the Spirit comes into our hearts, because he is God, and because Jesus is God, Jesus can say, where he goes, I goes. Because the Holy Spirit is coming, I'm coming to you. Which is so good news, because the Holy Spirit then is the one who actually gives us the actual presence of Jesus. That you don't get the Spirit without Jesus. Where Jesus' best friend goes, Jesus is saying, I'm going. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. Which is, uh, one of my favorite icebreakers to do in like a Bible study to start out is to say, uh, if you had a time machine, you could go back and have a meal with one person, who would it be? And because everyone in a Bible study is good Christians, they always say who? Jesus. Which, I, I totally get that. Who doesn't want to see the face of Jesus when he comes back? But you don't need a time machine to go have a meal with Jesus. Come to church. 
We do it once a month here at Siddle Square. It's called the Lord's Supper. Or pray and commune with God as you sit down with your tuna sandwich at work. And that's what you eat, tuna sandwiches at work. I don't want to work with you if you do. But you can commune with Jesus right there. Why? Because you have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, you have Christ. When we get intimacy with him, we get intimacy with Christ as well. And it's so intimate, the relationship we have with him, that he can even say what he says next in verse 20, which is staggering. Look at this. He says, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. So the disciples' experience of Jesus so far, what you would say has been pretty intimate, right? They've walked with him. They've learned to pray from him. They've probably laughed with him for three years now. And Jesus could be with them. He walked behind them and in front of them, beside them. He sat next to them. It even sounds like John sat in his lap almost at the Lord's Supper. They were intimate. But Jesus couldn't actually be in them until the Spirit comes. And then when the Spirit comes, Jesus can say, I will be in you and you will be in me. And this is the doctrine of union with Christ. Welcome. How is it? The water's nice, isn't it? Welcome to union with Christ. This is the doctrine that is probably the most important doctrine that you rarely hear talked about. Union with Christ essentially says this, that when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us, that we are actually united, bound to the person of Jesus Christ. This is truly what it means to be saved. You know that? That we get Christ We talk about that a lot here at the church, that when we are saved, we actually get Christ. It's not like God has a bucket of salvation dust that he sprinkles over our head. No, salvation is Christ. Therefore, to have salvation means to be bound up, grafted in, united with Christ himself. We get him. We get his life. And what makes this even better is that we don't just get Jesus, but this means that he gets all that is ours and we get all that is his. We get everything that's his. This is what Paul says in, in Ephesians 1, that we have been uh, gifted all the, the blessings in the heavenly realm. I can't remember exactly what he says. Something like that. In Christ. That if we have Christ, we have his blessings. We get his righteousness. We get his holiness. We get his beauty. But the most important blessing that Jesus wants us to have, the most important thing that is, is most treasured and most precious to Christ himself, is what? What do you think it is? It's his very own relationship with his father. It's that exuberant, vibrant, rich, super abundant relationship of love that has been throughout all of eternity. And he wants to bring us into it. This is what he's talking about when he says that uh, in the same way that you are in me, I am in my father. I want to show you this somewhere else, though, to help it make a little bit more sense. Flip over to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4. When you get to Galatians 4, look at verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. If you like to write in your Bible, circle that. His son. Born of a woman, 
born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Circle that. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, Paul's language here, he's not just writing off the cuff. Paul's language here is so specific and particular. You see what he says? He says, God sent forth his son so that we can be adopted as sons. He doesn't say that so that we can be adopted as sons and daughters. He says, as sons. Ladies, I'm sorry if that rubs you the wrong way, that you have to be a son. Guys have to call Jesus their husband, so no one gets out of this free. But we're all sons. Why? Because we're in the son. Listen, we don't just get abstract childhood status when we become Christians. And God is some abstract father. When we become a Christian, we are in the son, therefore we get the father. We are sons. In the realest sense of the word. What uh, the early church said when they, when they talked about this, which was often, they said what Jesus is by nature, son of God, we are by grace, sons of God. That we become the exact same thing. Which is why a few chapters later in John, Jesus, after he's resurrected, can see Mary Magdalene. And he says, do not cling to me. Why? Because I'm going to my father and to your father. You get the relationship, the fellowship, the perfect communion with him that Jesus has enjoyed forever. How intimate is that? How brilliant is that? Isn't that awesome? So we've seen so far that we get intimacy with the Holy Spirit. We've seen that we get intimacy with the Son. And we've even seen how we get intimacy with the Father as sons. But now we're going to see that that intimacy is so much richer, so much better, so much more glorious than we ever thought. Look at verse 21. It says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Does this sound familiar? Sounds like verse 15, doesn't it? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right here, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Do you think it's important if Jesus says it twice? Absolutely it is. But look what he continues to say. He says, and he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What does Jesus mean by this? He's... This is a lot. I get it. But what we get here is so good. It's, it's the motivation behind all of this. What he says is that Jesus doesn't want just a one-sided love relationship. He doesn't just say, hey, love me and obey me, and I won't give you anything back. No, what Jesus shows is that however much love you give him, however much obedience you give to him, you're only ever going to find at the other side that the Father and the Son also love you which is great news for people who fail to love Jesus as much as we should, right? Because this is perfect motivation. That's what Jesus is doing. The best way to motivate people is for, to love is with love. You can't coerce love. I couldn't be like, Hannah, on my first date, I demand that you love me. She'd be like, get away from me. No, I had to, 
I had to woo her, right? I had to give her flowers. I had to miss Clemson football games to hang out with her. I had to do all this stuff. I had to win her with love. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, hey, when you love, guess what? You're going to find that there's much more abundant love on the other side. No matter what kind of obedience you pour out in the name of Jesus Christ, you're only ever going to find on the other side a deeper experience, a fuller experience of the love of God. You'll never ever get to heaven and be like, man, all that obedience wasn't worth it. Wasn't worth it. No. You're going to look back at your life and you're going to be in the presence of God and be like, wow, he loves me more than I ever thought he would. Every single part of it, everything I gave up in obedience for the sake of Jesus was totally, completely worth it. That's what Jesus is saying here. But all this stuff admittedly, for us, it's kind of tough to understand, isn't it? It's kind of vague. I recognize that. Who really knows how to describe the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and being united to Christ? And if this is tough for us, imagine what this would have been like for the disciples. Probably like, uh, Jesus? What? What are you talking about? And that's exactly what, what Judas is about to talk about here in, in verse uh, 22. It says, Judas, not Iscariot, which I just love that. That makes me laugh every single time I see it. Like, I would just lead with that if I'm Judas. Like, hey, I'm Judas, not Iscariot. Suggs, pleasure to do business with you. Not that guy, all right? Not same. Anyways, I laugh at these kind of things now. I don't get out much these days being a dad, so I have to find humor where I can. So Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it? that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. So Judas is confused about what Jesus just said. Jesus said, I'm going to manifest myself to you. And he says, how are you going to manifest yourself to us but not to everybody else? He's not confused why. He's confused how. Because what's going on probably in his mind and was very common in this, in this day was an understanding of when the Messiah came that there would be this um, cataclysmic, militant, political display of power. That Jesus, as the Messiah, would come in, kick down the door of the Romans, and set up his reign in Jerusalem. So that's what he's expecting, most likely. He's expecting, yeah, we're here in Jerusalem. It's about to go down. Go get him, Jesus. And Jesus says, actually, I'm only going to manifest myself to you guys. And he's like, wait, what? What do you mean? And in classic Jesus-like fashion, what he's going to do is he's going to redefine Judas's terms for him. He's going to reframe the idea uh, he doesn't deny what Judas is thinking. I want you to notice that in a second. He doesn't deny it because there will be a day when Jesus will come back with the sword. That day is not here. The way he's going to manifest his, himself to the disciples is different than what Judas thinks. So look at verse 23. And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And the Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Which means that Jesus isn't going to go and knock down the door of the Romans. He isn't going to kick them out of Jerusalem and set up his reign there. The way Jesus is going to manifest himself is by knocking down the door of the disciples' hearts and setting up his reign in their hearts. He's going to come in and he's going to say, actually, this is my home. The very center of who you are, this is where I belong. That what's most important to Jesus in this time is the hearts of the people that love him. 
And that's where he's going to, to show his, his supernatural, cataclysmic display of power is by, without asking, ram into the doors of your hearts, come in and say, this is my home. And, but it's not just his home, is it? This is what he says. He says, we will come to him. Who's we? Jesus and Spirit and the Father. Which, is, which means that if we track what's going on through this passage the whole time, that we don't just get the Spirit, right? When we get the Spirit, we get Christ. But we don't just get the Christ and the Spirit either. But where we get the where we get the Spirit and when we get Christ, we also get the Father. You can't pull them away from each other. You can't abstract them, which means, get this, this is so good, that when you become a Christian, you get the entire Trinity at the very center of your life. That he comes in to your heart and he says, this is home. And there's so many things that this means for our lives. There's so many. I couldn't Write all of them down because I know I wouldn't even have time to talk about them. But I want to give you two things that this means. Two ways that this should, this should encourage you. One is that this should comfort you. I'm going to be honest. This year, my wife and I have been through some challenges. It has been this passage that has been such a steadying, deep comfort in my heart. To know that, that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love us so much, desire such deep intimacy with so much, that they don't just want to be with us like across the room for, from us. But they want to be in us. They want to be at the very center of our lives. And this is why Augustine prayed, uh, you, oh God, are closer to me than I am to myself. Has that warmed your heart? Does it, does it comfort you to know that God wants to be down to the deepest parts of who you are? That he wants to be integrated into the very com- components, the nitty-gritty components of your life? He loves you that much. So this should comfort you. But also this, this gives us tremendous perspective. Because if you're a Christian, you undoubtedly know the feeling of, I know that I should feel close to God, but it feels like he's kicked down the door in my heart and everything else on the inside as well. I mean, it feels like he has just thrown the place into a wreck. He has thrown everything in my life in disarray. I have no idea what he's doing. I don't really feel that close to him at all. And this passage helps us to be able to understand that because a lot of times when, when God comes into our hearts, he doesn't say, wow, what a nice place you have here. I think I'm comfortable. He says, I want this place to look like me, so I might need to renovate. My, my wife, Hannah, before she stayed at home uh, with her son, she was an interior designer. And she couldn't, as an interior designer, just go and design every house like she wanted it to look. She had to get to know the client. You had to know what are the client's passions and perspectives. What are the things that they like? What kind of art do they like? What kind of furniture? Let's put a bunch of samples out in front of you, and you tell me which ones you like. She had to learn the client just as much as she learns interior design so that she can make the house a reflection of the client. Well, that's a lot of what's happening, too, here with God in our hearts. He wants his home to reflect him, to be an extension of him. He wants to remake us into his image. C.S. Lewis says this really well. So he says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. 
What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a wing here and putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Doesn't that give you some perspective on what's going on in your life? That just because your life looks different than what you thought it would look like doesn't mean that God isn't intimate with you and doesn't want to be intimate with you. In fact, it means the opposite. Doesn't he discipline the son whom he loves? He's drawing you into intimacy with him. That when he takes away those, those channels of his blessing, he's inviting you to drink from him, the well himself. And now look at verse 24. This is where we'll end. It says, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Which in short just means that if you don't love and obey Jesus, then you really also don't love and obey the Father. You're not acting as a son. You're proving that your love lies elsewhere, which is a pretty crushing indictment, isn't it? That's a, that's a tough thing to think about. But the whole of what Jesus has talked about here in this passage is, is kind of pressed on us here. So essentially, he has said, look how much God loves you. Look how intimate you can be with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Will you not love him? Will you spurn his love? Love him. Obey him. That's what he's inviting us into. Not because he's a power-hungry maniac, but because he wants love for us on the other side as well. And the whole time in this passage, we've talked a lot about what does this mean for us? Which is, a, which is a good question. And we've seen a lot of great things. But I think the most heartwarming, but also the heart, most heart-wrenching thing that we see in, in this passage is what this all means for Jesus. We saw in the beginning that he is so concerned with the troubled hearts of the disciples, right? So that in verse 1 and verse 27. But if we go back just a couple chapters, in, verse, in uh, chapter 12, verse 27, this is what Jesus says. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So Jesus' own heart is troubled because of the prospect of what he has to go through on the cross. Now granted, Jesus' troubled hearts is different than ours. Ours a lot of times is tied up in unbelief and misplaced loves. Jesus' isn't, but we see something immensely awesome about Jesus here. It's that on the night when there should only be one person who's really troubled, and that's Jesus because of what he's about to go through, he is so troubled for the disciples' troubled hearts that he cares so much about their troubled hearts. Isn't that just like Jesus? To care way more about their hearts than even his own. And if he did on that night, doesn't he now? You think he cares about the troubles going on in your life? The things that unsteady your heart? But this is what makes these promises that he gives so amazing. Because the only way for these promises to actually come about, for him to actually send the Holy Spirit and dwell us, unite us with Christ, and so that the whole Trinity can be in the center of our lives, is if Jesus actually goes to the cross, dies, resurrected, and goes to the Father. Which means to actually come through on these promises, to actually be faithful so that we can enjoy them, Jesus has to stare right into the face of death 
to plunge into the cross and to hell and to say that uh, the thing that is troubling his heart, he is going to endure. Why? So that we can enjoy this intimacy with God. He's the one who, who alienates himself so that we can be brought in. So that now, that no matter what is going on in life or in our hearts, or the fears that lie in the future that we can't control, no matter if any of these things that trouble our hearts, we can know that we have intimacy with the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. To give us ballast, to weigh us down, to be able to navigate what's going on in life. Not to completely get rid of them. You're not going to have a perfect life after you come to know Christ. But now you have the resources, eternally wonderful, loving resources of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the very center of your life, so that you can walk with him and know him, so that one day, not only will he make his home in you, but he will bring his home down to you. You can enjoy perfect intimacy that we all long for when we see Jesus Christ face to face. Aren't these great promises? Isn't this beautiful? Whoever thought that we could receive things like this? Amazing. So let's pray. Father, I don't think we even have the words to, to put around what you have done for us in Christ. That you would come to us, people who, who fail to love you, who, are love, who love other things way more than we love you, that you would come to us and you would love us still. That while we were still sinners, you showed your love for us and that Christ died for us. We got thank you so much that in that, you have also given us your spirit to have communion and life with you, to even know your life and your love, to be able to call you Father so that you can be at the center of our life and we can be at the center of your heart. God, thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you for your grace. We ask that you would help us to walk in these today, that you would help us to, to walk in love and obedience to you because of all that you've done for us and because of the promises that await us on the other side. Let us not spurn them. Let us not kick against the Holy Spirit, but let us walk with him. Let us be soft to him, repentant hearts that are ready to receive a deeper fellowship, a deeper communion, a deeper intimacy with you alone, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.